I'd like to give a quick introduction to our guest speaker this morning. Uh, we are going to be hearing from Scott Thompson. And as was said earlier, uh, Scott is the director of the crew ministry at UConn. And that means that he was my former supervisor uh, when I worked for crew. And I think, if my math is correct, this is your eighth year at UConn, eighth or ninth year. So he's been there for a while. Uh, he's, he serves there with his wife, Jen. And uh, he, they have a daughter, Hannah, who... Um, Oh, just went downstairs. Okay, all right. Um, I, but I am so glad that he's here today, and uh, let's welcome him up. Him up. <clears throat> In being Ryan's supervisor, we'll emphasize the visor part of that. It has been, or it was great working with Ryan uh, at UConn and really appreciate him being here now. I appreciate you and the role you have in this community and uh, holding fast to the gospel, compassionately demonstrating it, passionately proclaiming it to people around you. Uh, it is part of the larger work that God is doing uh, not just at UConn and the town surrounding it, but in this world. So thank you for the role that you play in it. To the students who are here this morning uh, that know me, I'm sorry. <laughs> you came probably thinking you wouldn't have to see me again uh, until later this week. So I apologize for that maybe unpleasant surprise when you walked in. Oh no, I have to listen to him again. Uh, hopefully it's not that bad. Um, I want to take a look at a number of passages of Scripture this morning as we talk about this idea, because of the gospel, I have nothing to fear. And so if you have a Bible or an app, um, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me? I'm going to read through the passage and I'm going to spend a little time uh, looking at it, talking about the gospel, and then eventually we're going to get more into this idea of fear. And how does the gospel relate to our fear? Uh, how are we to live in light of the gospel? Um, and hopefully God will do some mighty things in our hearts and in our minds and how we live through this. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1, says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally or untimely born. Now, Paul penned these words to the church in Corinth and in what we've read, his intention is to remind them of the gospel, to remind them of the reality of the gospel message, and that it is of first importance. Uh, Paul had received a report 
from Corinth about divisions in the church, things that were going on in terms of sexual immorality, um, misappropriation of the, the elements and celebrating the, the Lord's Supper. There are a variety of things that Paul was encountering in this church, and he writes this letter as well as uh, his second letter to them to address some of these things. And as we get to the end of 1 Corinthians, he's turning attention back to the gospel. He's turning their attention back to, as he puts it, what is of first importance. For this reason I passed on to you as of first importance. And he begins to lay some things out about the gospel, and we're going to get to this in a minute. For some of you, you're here because you have seen the gospel as true, as rich, and as necessary for your lives, and you have committed yourself to surrendering yourself to the Lord. For some of you, you're here this morning because this gospel message is something that you are exploring. Is it real? Is it true? Is it good? In either situation, it's important for us to understand what it is we're believing in, what it is we're exploring, what in fact is the gospel. Paul wants to remind his audience, and my hope is that I can remind you a little bit of what the gospel is. Now there are a variety of ways that we could make statements, phrases to, to speak to or to answer this question, what is the gospel? We can say some things that are very simple yet profoundly true. God, through Christ, does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Or maybe Christ's redeeming work to bring sinful men and women like you and me to himself. Or we could say something simple and true like God's love, my sin, Christ's redemption, my response. These are summations of the gospel message. In fact, in 2009, the Gospel Coalition uh, put together... Not exhaustive, but a rather long list of the definitions of the gospel that had come forth through theologians of yesteryear, as well as current pastors, teachers, and theologians now, um, as well as definitions that come from organizations, how they define the gospel. And I would say all of these are true. As I read through the list, they're great ways to explain what the gospel is. You can find a PDF of it online if you were interested. I want to present another way for you to think about the gospel, though, as well. And I think it's important for us to grasp simple and profound truth and to be able to communicate it simply, profoundly, and quickly. But I also think there's a depth, a richness, um, uh, I don't know, kind of a, a breadth to the gospel that sometimes we miss in our attempts to communicate simply what the gospel is. So this is what I've put together uh, for, for myself, but also for you. What is the gospel? I would say the gospel is rooted in a person, secured through an event, powerful to save, available to all, not just for those who don't know Christ, and good both now and in the future. Let me read that again for you. The gospel, or good news, is rooted in a person, secured through an event, powerful to save, available to all, not just for those who don't know Jesus, and good both now and in the future. Let me break this down a little bit for us. The gospel is rooted in a person, maybe even more specifically three people. 
When we look at the Trinity, each member has a unique role uh, to fulfill in the good news, in the gospel. God the Father established, planned uh, what would happen to his son. Jesus earned and accomplished salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit seals and secures our relationship with the Father. The gospel is rooted in a person or three people. The gospel is an event, and this is one of the things Paul is getting to in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that something actually happened. There was an event in time and in history for him, the not-so-distant history. He says that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. In fact, if we look a little later in this same chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, and if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He's referring to an event, a very specific time in history where something was accomplished through what Jesus did on the cross for us. The gospel is an event as well. The gospel is available. In John's gospel, he writes, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To who? All. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. There's a power that comes through this message. For Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel is not just for people who don't believe. We often think that the gospel is what we need to proclaim uh, so that people have an understanding and so that God can work through that calling them to repentance and faith in Him. And that is true. But the gospel is also continual good news for those who do know Jesus. And we need to regularly be proclaiming that to ourselves, that we might continue to understand the fullness and the depth and the breadth of the good news of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And the gospel is both now and then. What do I mean by that? The gospel makes promises to us regarding our life now. The gospel teaches us, uh, gives us things to think about, uh, instructs us in terms of how we are to live and what we are to feel in the here and now. But it also makes promises to us of what is yet to come. The realities of what lie ahead, both for those who know Jesus and those who don't. The reality is that the gospel should make an impact on us deeply. And when we grasp, when we begin to cling to, when we hold fast to this message, it changes us. The gospel should have an effect on our lives. How we think, how we feel, what we feel, what we do. And Paul in this passage is saying, I'm passing on to you what is of first importance. The reality of what Jesus has done for you and all that is wrapped up in this message purchasing for you the right to come to the Father, the ability to come to the Father. And and as we think about the gospel having an effect on our lives, what are some of the things that it it should impact? What are some of the things that it should affect? Well, we could say a lot of things, that because of the gospel, I have nothing to prove. Because I have a secure standing in Christ Christ, I don't have to prove anything to myself, to God, or to others around me. 
because of what Jesus did for me. I could say because of the gospel, I have nothing to hide. In reality, God knows, God sees. He has unlimited, unfettered access to every aspect of who I am. My thoughts, my emotions, what I do, what I do in secret. God knows all these things, and yet He still loves me. He still gave His Son for me. Because of the gospel, I don't have anything to hide. I don't have anything to lose either. When I think about what is yet to come versus what I have now, Everything in this world here that is of significance to God will last for all eternity. And those things that are superfluous, I'm not really losing anything. Because they don't matter in the grand scheme of things. I could say because of the gospel I am fully loved and accepted. Even though he sees the things that not everyone sees in my life. Or I could say because of the gospel... I have nothing to fear. And I wanted to touch on this aspect of fear, partly because it's, it's what I'm going through currently. Um, I want to share a little bit about that with you. Uh, God's best plan for my wife and I in growing our family has been adoption. And three years ago, we adopted our daughter, Hannah. She's three years old today. She's the one that went downstairs a few minutes ago. And recently, my wife and I have been reading books about raising adopted children. Uh, This is the reality for us, and so we're spending some time reading about, okay, what does this reality mean? Uh, What is different about raising adopted children versus biological children? Um, Are there things that are different? I think there are. Uh, But as I read one book, with each subsequent chapter, in each section in the chapter, I find my, found myself becoming more and more crippled, more and more paralyzed with fear. Oh, I didn't do that. Or I'm not doing that. And this can be true of, of any of you who are parents, guardians of anyone, that it's easy to think about the pitfalls of, of parenthood or caring for other people. Oh, I didn't do that. I should have done that differently. I'm going to mess it all up in the future. And as I read these books, it was this fear that was paralyzing me. Oh, all the ways I've messed up. I don't think I can do that going forward. With all the different nuances surrounding adopted children, how much of what they're experiencing, how much of it is related to being adopted, how much is it just related to the fact that we're all sinful, and that includes our children. But I find myself crippled with fear, wondering if I can really do this. And then I realize that there's a truth to the gospel that is meant to free me from that fear, from that paralysis. I want to do this too. Um, Fear in and of itself, is not necessarily a bad thing. I think the fear that I'm describing in my life is not healthy, not good, and hopefully, as we'll see in a minute, something that the gospel can free us from. But fear is talked about in the scriptures, in both the Old and New Testament, and it's talked about in a way that it is something that we should have. Deuteronomy chapter 6 So in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord is something that's affirmed. It's encouraged. 
Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commands, which I command you all of the days of your life, and that your days may be long. God's telling his people, fear the Lord your God. Proverbs 1.7, fear, fear of the Lord has a connection between knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Or Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is, under, is understanding. Fast forward to the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.17. The New Testament continues to confirm and affirm this idea that fear, a certain type of fear, is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, one that is encouraged. 1 Peter 2.17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king or honor the emperor. So that I have... Four simple points that I want to make. Because of the gospel, I have nothing to fear. And then to look a little bit more into, well, what's the difference between the fear I'm talking about and the fear that God is saying is a good kind of fear? The first is this. We have no, no one earthly to fear. John 6.33, Jesus speaking to his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is warning his disciples. What's he warning them about? Well, he's, he's telling them that he's about to go to the cross, and eventually he will go away. He's preparing them for the realities of what are about to come, and he says essentially this, the world is going to hate you, you will be outcasts, you will be killed, and people will think in doing so they're providing the world a service. And he says, I'm going away, take courage, have peace, peace being the absence of fear. He says, fear not, I have overcome the world. We have no one earthly to fear. And when we think about the gravity of what Jesus was preparing the disciples for, and we think about ourselves as an extension of that, that's some pretty heavy stuff that you will be despised, you will be outcasts, you will be rejected, people will persecute you from your faith. Now, we probably don't feel that in significant ways, and we definitely don't feel it in the way that people who love Jesus around the world feel it. We live in a relatively safe and comfortable situation when it comes to um, being hated as a result of Jesus. Nonetheless, though, it is true that these things are part of knowing Jesus and can instill fear in us. Recently, I was meeting with some people trying to encourage them to see the unique position God has given them, the platform that he has provided for them to be a source of captivating people's hearts for Jesus. This is a lot of what I do in my job as a missionary, trying to exhort and encourage people to look at the opportunities that exist around them to have an influence for Christ in the world. 
And as I was talking with these people, the things that came out under the guise of wisdom, it was hesitation after hesitation. Exception after exception poured forth. Rebuttal after rebuttal. I can't, I can't. And I think this was because of fear. In the, the name of wisdom, this, these things poured forth, and I think that this ri- wisdom was rooted in fear of man, not the fear of God. We have no one earthly to fear. Second thing, we have no one supernatural to fear. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul introduces something interesting here. He doesn't so say what could be against us. He says who could be against us. He goes on later to say who shall separate us from the love of God. I think this relates to the previous point as well, but adds another layer to it for us. When we look at a few verses later, Romans 8.34, who is he that condemns? Who's the great condemner in our world? The enemy, Satan. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And in verse 38, he brings in this idea of angels and powers, principalities, demons. We have no one supernatural to fear in this world either because of the gospel which tells us that Jesus wins. That Jesus is more powerful than all these things. Jesus is greater. How about circumstances? I have, we have nothing circumstantial to fear because of the gospel. Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What does God do with circumstances? He works them together for our corporate, our collective, as well as our individual good. God causes, God works all things together for those who love him, for the good of those who love him. We have nothing circumstantial to fear. Joseph says, what man meant for evil, you, God, meant for good. Now, this isn't meant to trivialize challenges, difficulties, things that we're experiencing in life now, but rather to say we don't need to fear when these things come. We don't need to fear when we experience these things because we know that God is working all things together for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Psalm 23, David says this. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David's not saying you remove my enemies from you, but you do something for me in the midst of my enemies. You provide what I need in the presence of my enemies. The circumstances don't necessarily go away. They're still there. The enemies are present. But God is doing something for him that casts out fear. He says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I what? Fear no evil. 
He's still walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but his experience of it is very different when he understands that we have nothing circumstantial to fear because of God's goodness to us. Okay, we have nothing, no one earthly, no one supernatural to fear, and we have nothing circumstantial to fear. So what do we do when the Bible tells us to fear? We need to understand fear in this way. We need to understand fear as true awe, as honor, as reverence. I'm going to read a rather lengthy section of Deuteronomy to you, and I want you to just listen to what God is saying to his people then and I think to us now. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. And you could take that passage and we could translate it to our day and age too. Remember the things that God has done in your midst. Remember the things that He has done to bring you to Himself. Remember that He has brought you who were far off near to Him. So fear Him. Walk with Him. Obey Him. Sometimes we fear man circumstances, and the enemy more than we actually fear the consequences of not being obedient to the Lord. Through Moses, God is saying, obey me, fear me, stand in awe of me, honor me, revere me. Because of the gospel, I have nothing to fear, but a great God to revere and stand in awe of. When was the last time you stood in awe of something or of someone? I can remember a number of years ago, I was visiting my best friend in Atlanta, and he works as a trainer with athletes, and from time to time, very well-known, very accomplished professional athletes come through. And I was in his gym this one day, and in walks an NFL quarterback, and I I mean, my jaw dropped. I was a little giddy, um, but I just couldn't believe it. I mean, the stature, the strength. 
I shook his hand and I felt like my hand just disappeared in his. There was a sense of awe, like, oh my goodness. And then, knowing what he does every Sunday, I, I just stood back. It was like, wow, what an athlete. Do I do the same thing to an even greater degree, though, with my Heavenly Father? Do I stand in awe of Him? Do I revere Him? Do I honor Him? Does my jaw literally drop when I notice Him doing something in my life or through my life or in the lives of other people around me? Joshua 24.15 says this, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, and I hope it's not, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. Joshua says, But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We have the opportunity to be servants of the Lord, to be servants of his good gospel in this world, or we can be servants of fear. Choose today who or what you will fear. Earthly people? Supernatural beings? Fearing life circumstances? Or will we stand in awe and reverence and honor of God? Fear can enslave us so that we're ruled by it and not truly free. We serve it like it is our master. So choose today who or what you will serve. Earthly masters, supernatural beings, life circumstances, or God. The gospel connects us to the only true God who has always, who is now, and will always act on your behalf for your greater good and his greatest glory. Let me read that again. The gospel connects us to the only true God who has always, is currently, and will always act on your behalf for your greater good and his greatest glory. Fear not, for he is with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love that you set into motion a plan establishing a way for sinful people to come to know you. We thank you, Jesus, that you came obedient to the Father, emptying yourself to secure, to win a way for us to know your Father. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for, for your ongoing work, sealing in us the goodness, the reality of the gospel and our relationship with you. And Father, I pray for myself and I pray for the people in this room, Lord, that the gospel would free them from fear. That the good news of what you have done as a person what was accomplished through an event, what is available to all, what has power to save, what is both good now and in the future, 
would have a profound and deep impact on what we think, on what we feel, what we do, and that it would free us from fear. Fear of man, fear of the enemy, fear of circumstances in our lives. And I pray today, Lord, that we would have moments of reflection where we think back on all that you have done to bring us to yourself, to make us your children. When we think about how your hand has been on our lives all along, and would we find ourselves with our jaws dropping? Lord, would we approach you with such reverence and awe that that people need to come by and pick our jaws back up off the floor for us? Because we have been gripped by who you are and what you do. Jesus, we pray we lift all these things up to you. Thank you that you work for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.